the plagues, so we might know God, that we might see his power over uh, all creation, that we'd see our powerlessness before him. Uh, We saw that there was uh, judgment on his enemies and salvation for his people. And we will continue to uh, think about that this week as we come to these uh, Passover, uh, the Passover, the tenth and final plague. And all the themes that we saw last week will uh, come to a head and be defined uh, this week uh, as we understand a little bit more about what's going on. And as we read through in a minute, you'll see that they're a little bit hard to understand in some ways, these verses, because they seem at first reading to all be a little bit jumbled up. Uh, There's a description of a kind of fast-paced narrative of what the story of what happened. And yet at the same time, uh, there's other things about the instructions of what to do and then instructions of what to do in the future when you remember uh, this time. And so let me just give you an overview uh, of what's going on and then we will uh, read it together and hopefully that will make more sense uh, as we then read it. You'll see that I've uh, broken up uh, the passage in your notes. Uh, on the first page there you'll see the different uh, sections that I think there is. Um, and that might just help you then as we read through to understand what's going on. So in uh, 11 uh, verses 1 to 9 we see that the same uh, time Moses in front of Pharaoh is in chapter 10 is being continued. So it's not, a, it's not another time that Moses is with Pharaoh. This is at uh, the same time. He's still in the presence of Pharaoh and at first we're told what God has previously said to Moses and Moses then relays that to Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh of what's going to happen. He warns him of the plague to come. And then in 12, 1 to 28 there's a mixture of instructions to the Israelites. Moses is no longer in the presence of Pharaoh. He now speaks to the Israelites in 1 to 13 Moses tells the Israelites what they must do on the first Passover night in 14 to 20 there's instructions about how to commemorate the event how to remember it in the future in verses 21 to 23 there's instructions for the first Passover night again and then in 24 to 28 there's more instructions about how to keep it in the future and so you see there's lots of instruction there about how to keep uh, the Passover both at the first time and then in the future and then the peace picks back up in, in chapter 12 in uh, 29 to 42 as we're told simply that the plague came and every firstborn in the land died apart from those who had blood over their doors as those who had put the blood around the outside of their doors. And then we see the Israelites being driven out of the land, of them, being, of them escaping from Egypt. Then in chapter 12, 43 to 13, 10, we have more instructions about who can eat and who can eat, and how it should be celebrated, when it's to be celebrated. And then finally in in chapter 13 of verses 11 to 16 there's instructions concerning the future of how to redeem the firstborn it's called um, how to uh, symbolically show that the firstborn are gods and how to kind of uh, show what that means so you'll see there's this mixture of 
what happens, but then also stuff about um, how they are to remember the first time and then remember in the future. Well, we're going to uh, read this whole section now. There's four people who are going to come up uh, now um, and then we'll, we'll read through. So do keep your Bibles open. Exodus chapter 11, um, and then we'll, we'll read through, um, I think, Stu's first. So we're starting to read it, Exodus chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from there, and when he does... He will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said, had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lamb. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and, I will, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day until the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it, in the blood of the, in the, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door, door frames and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask to you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite peoples lived in Egypt was 430 years. 
At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have brought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native-born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day the Lord came out, the day the Lord came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today is the month of Abib. You are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land He swore to your forefathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt... This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hands. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time of year, year, appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Thank you very much. For that, you know, there's some events 
uh, in the life of maybe your family, but also in the life of the nation, in the life of uh, the world, which are, are seminal events. Events which everybody knows about. Uh, events in which you trace the time up to them, and then the time after them, and they become a central date, a date by, things by which other things are defined. You know, for example, I could say 9-11, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I could say 7-7, and again, people know what you're talking about. Just by seeing the dates, things happened on those days, that they then become seminal for how we understand uh, our national life. In other countries, you've got different things. When we were in Australia, uh, the 26th of January was Australia Day. Uh, a big day in the national uh, life of Australia. Or the 25th of April is Anzac Day, similar to our Remembrance Day. Again, a date which people remember, which look forward to. Another day that Australia had actually was, um, they, they had the Queen's birthday. They had a, a public holiday for the Queen's birthday. Which I thought was really strange, because most Australians are quite Republican. They don't really like the Queen, um, apart from uh, having a day off for her birthday. Um, so sometime around May they have the day off uh, other days in other countries in America the 4th of July Independence Day it's a day by which time is kind of calibrated uh, by which you measure where you are in the year but for the Israelites the Passover was that time now did you see as we read through that their whole calendar was changed because of it the first month of their year was now going to be the, the month when they celebrated the Passover. It's to be the beginning of the year. The new year was to be when the Passover happened. Now they traced their whole national consciousness to this event. They traced their uh, being as a nation to this event. It was a time they were saved from Egypt. And so it then defined who they were. This was a huge defining moment for the people of Israel. And, and just as we've read through the narrative, now it's, it's woven through the, how they're to remember as well as what happened on that first time. It's all kind of mixed up and jumbled up. And I think that's deliberate. Because we're meant to read the narrative of what happened in light of what it means to remember not just an event of something that happened in history, but it's something to be repeated symbolically year after year as they have the Passover feast, they sacrifice the lamb and eat it. And then for seven days after, they have the feast of the unleavened bread when they escape from Egypt um, with the bread that didn't have the yeast in it yet. And they eat unleavened bread to remember that. This time was so significant for the, the nation of Israel. She's a, a point, an event to be remembered and to be remembered seriously so that even during the year when a firstborn is, is born and then another animal is killed so the firstborn son is redeemed symbolically and then later they say, why do we do this? Well, then the family can say, well, when we were in Egypt God went through the land and he saved us and took us out and so we do this to remember it. It was woven right through their national understanding, this event. And it tells us what God is like in relation to his people. It defines what God is like in some ways. 
You remember in weeks past we've seen that God says, I am. That's the description of who he is. I am or I will be who I will be. And as we see God acting, we understand more of what it means when he says, I am. When he's the God who doesn't change, the God who's always the same. And so as we read this story, this is what God is like. This is how God relates to people. He is now known as the God who saves his people from Egypt. That's who he is. And so let's just look at what it teaches. The first thing to see is the plague teaches something about judgment. Now did you see it? um, And did you hear it? We read through in, in Exodus. Exodus 12 and verse 12. Now God says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And this is a significant bit. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. You see, this tenth and final plague, this terrible plague, comes because of the gods of Egypt. Because of the idols of Egypt. Now when we read of the the gods of Egypt, it seems a bit of an odd kind of phrase. Why were people judged for these gods of Egypt? But when we read that, you've got to understand that the gods don't have existence on their own. They only have existence in as much as they are things that people worship. The things that people put in the place of God. The things that people bow down to instead of God. Without that, those gods are nothing. So you see, it's the people who are idolaters, worshipping things other than God. And it's that which is so serious. The people have worshipped things other than God, and that has huge consequences. And the judgment comes. Now I know for some people, and probably some people here, To talk of judgment is offensive. You would rather we didn't talk about it at all. Now I was speaking to one guy this week. He was committed to a naturalistic understanding of the world, materialistic understanding of the world, in which actions have no consequence. It doesn't matter what you do. Anybody can do whatever they want. It doesn't really matter. There's, there's nothing that really matters. And so for him, to say that some people would be judged for how they've acted is just offensive. It's just a power play to try and scare people into believing something. And yet as we read the Bible, as we read the history of God's interaction with the world, that's just not the case. Stuff matters. You know, the Bible consistently teaches that people have rejected God and that has consequences. It's not that we want to talk or like talking about or delight in talking about these things. But I'm not going to do you any good by saying judgment doesn't exist. You're not going to do your friends any good by saying judgment does not exist. If you're here this morning and don't believe in Christianity 
I'm not going to do you any good by pretending that judgment doesn't exist. You see, God minds about how people treat him. He's concerned about how people deal with him and treat him. And it's not just something that happens in the Old Testament. Listen to these words from the, the book of Romans in the New Testament. It says this in chapter 1, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, by their, uh, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You see, the wrath of God is being revealed. Judgment is happening. It's a reality. And all people, even us who are here this morning as Christians, are people who have rejected God in the past and who deserve the judgment of God. And as we read of the Passover in Exodus, we remember that that is only really a shadow of the judgment which was to come in the future. And as we read the passage, one of the obvious things is that the judgment would have fallen on Israel as well. But the Israelites are saved, they're rescued through substitution. They're saved through the judgment because another dies. So see, rescue through substitution. I don't know if you remember last week as we looked at the plagues, as, the, as you look at the nine plagues, Time and again we're told that God makes a distinction between Egypt on the one hand and his people Israel on the other. So the plagues fall on Egypt, but his people go free. So the flies come, for example, they come, or so the livestock die, say. The livestock of the Egyptians dies, but the, Egyptian, the Israelites, none of their livestock die. You see it time and time again as you go through. God spares his people because of the covenant he makes. And they're not spared because they are good. They were equally sinners. They equally would have rejected God. But God saves them because they are his people, those that he has chosen. God is merciful and kind to them. And they escape because of that. Now it's quite staggering as we looked at that that God was merciful and kind to his people. And yet in this plague we see that God puts a condition on it. He will spare his people but they have to do something this time. God tells them that something must happen and if they don't believe him they will face judgment too. And we see what had to happen this time is that the lamb had to die. Did you see how it all worked in chapter 12? On the tenth day of this new month of their year, uh, the head of the family goes out to uh, select a a blemish-free lamb or uh, a goat, a young goat. Uh, They choose a a beautiful uh, young year-old individual, big enough so that everybody in the family can eat of it. You see it described in 
tell the whole community of Israel on the tenth day of this month each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household if any household is too small for a whole lamb they must share it with one with one share one with their nearest neighbour having taken into account the number of people there you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat so that's on the tenth day that animal is kept by the family for four days until the fourteenth day and then on that fourth day the animal's killed and as they kill it they catch some of the blood in a bowl and that blood is taken outside and uh, with a bit of hyssop, a bit of a branch they they dip it in the blood and smear it over the top of the door and and down the doorposts you see in verse 6 of the passage take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the door on the sides and tops of the door frame of the houses where they eat the lambs then the family takes the dead animal and cooks it the head and the, the, the body the legs and everything inside they cook it on the fire and they eat it they have a family meal of roast lamb. I don't know about you, I, I, I like roast lamb. Um, it's great, isn't it, when you sit down. It's often, Easter's the time I can remember eating roast lamb. And you sit at the table and you relax with your family and you eat this, this meal together. It's a great time of uh, just enjoying company with each other. You see, that's not the meal the Israelites read, eat. Did you see it? Look out there to eat it in verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. You see, they're they're, they're to be dressed and ready to run. It's not a, a relaxed, leisurely, enjoyable meal. They know what's going to happen. God has said he's going to come in judgment on the nation. And they know the only thing that means they might be alright is a bit of blood above the door and down the sides. I wonder what the tension must have been like as they ate that meal. Look at 12.12 again. On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And the Israelites believe God and do what he says and are saved. Now we read it in verse 28. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. God sees the blood and they are saved. The firstborn with the, of the families with the blood above the door are saved. Saved because of the blood that was shed. Just think about it. I wonder how they must have felt on that first night. God said this is what's going to happen. Do you know, the day must have seemed like any other day in many ways, mustn't it? And yet the only difference was God said to do something different. I wonder whether they thought as they killed the lamb, this just seems all a bit ridiculous. 
why, why do this? It just seems a bit silly. Why put this blood over the doors? And I wonder whether there was some who thought, that's just stupid. Why, why do that? Yet it would be stupid not to listen to God, wouldn't it? When God says something's going to happen and then we ignore it. Now it's quite simple in some ways. When God speaks, we should listen. And so what are we to think about all this, the, the Passover? Well, it's quite clear in some ways, isn't it? The firstborn of the families live because the lamb dies. Because the blood was spilt. Because the blood was seen. If the lamb wasn't killed and the blood wasn't displayed, the firstborn would have died. That's what happened throughout Egypt. Now this is a way, you, the way kind of theologians would talk about it, say it's substitution. Now there's a substitute for the firstborn. The death of the lamb stands in place of the oldest son. And the Passover is just a foreshadow of the greater deliverance to come. The greater deliverance that God would bring about our experience of deliverance as Christians. The Apostle Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As God saved Israel in Egypt through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, God now saves all people through the sacrifice of Jesus. The blood protects the Israelites. The blood of Jesus protects us here. And while there's not loads of references through the New Testament which explicitly say Christ is our Passover lamb, there is evidence that it is clear and widespread through the New Testament. Now consider the Gospels and how they present when Jesus' death happened. You see it in Luke's Gospel. Turn Turn to Luke in chapter 22. Hopefully you'll see this. Luke chapter 22. Uh, when we get to Luke uh, chapter 2 in the, in, the, in the Gospel, we see that it's... Um, the time comes and Jesus then, his death is imminent, it's about to happen. And the, the pace moves to his death and it's all about his death. In verse 1, see what it says? Now the feast of unleavened bread called Passover, the Passover, was approaching. And then we go on to be told that Judas at this time betrays Jesus. He goes to the high priest and says, I will give him to you. At the Passover time. Then in verse 7 we read, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. 
You see, the Passover, again, within those kind of few verses, the Passover is specifically spoken about. And Jesus chooses this time, the time of Passover, when he's going to die. He deliberately does this so that we might understand his death in the light of the Passover. Do you remember what Jesus says elsewhere in John's Gospel? He says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. In John's Gospel, you read through, Jesus chooses exactly the moment when he dies. He is in control of every moment of it. And he chooses the time of his arrest and trial and crucifixion to be the time of Passover. And so we understand all of that in the light of the Passover. And then Luke 22, he eats the meals with the disciples. And as they're eating, he says in verse 14, that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles were reclining at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wanted to eat the Passover before he suffered, before his death. He continues, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. See what he does? As they are sitting down to remember what happens in Egypt all those years ago and how God saved them through the sacrifice of a lamb. Jesus takes the cup and says, this speaks about me. It's my blood which is poured out for you. He reinterprets the Passover feast and says, it's all about me. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper Communion, not the Passover. See, while communion is more than just remembering, it's not less. We remember the great sacrifice Jesus made for us, our substitute. Interestingly, in in John's Gospel, you get just a little glimpse of something else. Now, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the guards come along to, to break the legs of all the prisoners so that they'll die quicker. They they arrive at Jesus' cross as he is on the cross and they find him already dead. And so John notes that they did not break any of his bones. But did you see in the Passover, do you remember what the Israelites, other thing the Israelites weren't to do? Don't break any of the bones of the lamb. As Jesus dies on the cross, None of his bones are broken. None of the bones of our Passover lamb are broken. See, Jesus stands as our substitute. Stands in place of you, 
so that you can be free. And that's what you see all the way through the New Testament. Let me read a few verses for you. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, for us. Notice the preposition. Christ died on behalf of us. Or for the benefit of us. Or 2 Corinthians 5.4 Paul says, For Christ's Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Or Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See again the preposition for. It was for us he stood there. In Mark 10.45 you've had a different preposition but the same translation. A well known verse. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The preposition in Greek there is anti. And it means to stand in the place of. So Christ died as a ransom in the place of many. In place of you. He was your substitute. And in 1 Timothy we see Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. A ransom for all men. Christ died in the place of all for us. Christ is our substitute, our representative. And it's not as if we choose him to be our substitute, to stand in our place. He chose us while we were still sinners. Not because we wanted him, but because he loved us. See, and under this understanding of substitutionary atonement is really important. You see, without it, we would still be under God's wrath. And the reason we are not is because Jesus stood in our place. You see, the Bible adds another a category which is central to how we understand what happened on the cross. And that is to say that it was a, a penal substitutionary atonement. That is, Jesus bore the wrath that was due us. It was penal. He was considered guilty because of us and bore the wrath that we should have borne. Now, it's a a really important topic. If you want to look into a little bit more uh, about uh, penal substitutionary atonement, can I recommend an article? Uh, You can get it on the, the Theology Network website. And it's called, What Did the Cross Achieve? The Logic of Penal Substitutionary Atonement. What Did the Cross Achieve? The Logic of Penal Substitutionary Atonement by J.I. Packer. And he uh, unpacks uh, all of that. But just see why it's important for a moment. Uh, The Israelites learn that God saves people through substitution. And we are saved through substitution. 
Jesus is our substitute. He saved us by standing in our place. We didn't choose him to be our substitute. He chose us. While we were still sinners, still rejecting God, still against God, Christ died for us. And let me just outline a couple of applications for that. Now the whole of the Passover story told of God's rescue of his people. It was meant to be a time of joy and thankfulness for the people. Listen to how one Jewish writer before the time of Jesus described the Passover. This is what he says. Therefore we are bound to give thanks, to praise, to glorify, to honour, to exalt and to bless him who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and us. He brought us out of bondage to freedom, from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to festival day, and from darkness to great light, and from servitude to redemption. So let us say before him the hallelujah. Praise God. The Passover was a time of great joy for the people. And how much more for us who see Christ. Christ, our Passover lamb, who rescues us from bondage and brings us to freedom. Who rescues us from servitude and gives us redemption. And it's no wonder when Paul says he wants the Colossians to be rooted and built up in Christ, the faith as they were taught, he then says, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's what the gospel does. You overflow with thankfulness when you realise what's happened for you. I wonder how you feel after this week. How's your week been? You know, there are times this week when I think, why, why would God love me? You know, I've shouted at my children. I've been fickle with them. I shout at them and I make unreasonable demands of them. Why would he love me when I could be so evil? We see this passage of the Passover teaches it's not about my performance it's not about how good I am look to Jesus and see he loves you and stands in your place you know this week when I have been helping out in events week and I can think to myself I should have led loads of people to Christ but I've not what a failure I am This passage teaches me, look to Jesus. He is the one who loves you. He stood in your place and died for you. I was listening to a talk a couple of weeks ago in this this passage and the the person who was saying it says, no, we should never tell our children. So you can can store this in in the back of your mind if you ever have children in the future. Just never tell your children to keep loving Jesus. Never tell your children to keep loving Jesus. Tell them that Jesus loves them. So that's why um, the little children's song. I often we often sing it. Um, my children, my, one of my sons wants me to sing. Um, I don't really know why he wants me to sing. I'm not going to sing it now because I can't sing at all. Uh, but we sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so really simple truth Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so how do we know 
what Jesus stood in our place and took our wrath for us. You look to Jesus, remember God loves you not because of your performance or your actions or what you do. Look to the Lamb. Look to Jesus. You see, you look away from yourself and to what he has done for us. And yet, this passage also teaches us to look at other people rightly. So if you were to stand on in Western Bank and look down onto the concourse at lunchtime on a weekday and you see all the people milling around and going in and out, or you're to stand on Echoes Hall Road and, and look into the collegiate campus and see people coming and going from there, or to stand in the Owen building down in Hallam and, and look up and look around and see the hundreds of people around you, how do you consider them? Happy? Content? intelligent good looking we see this passage should help us to see that we need to view people rightly as God does are they Christ's or are they not Christ's is Jesus their substitute are they believing and trusting in God or in themselves Well, we're going to explore that a little bit more in groups now. There's a couple of questions to hopefully explore both those uh, things now.